Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're going to talk about the coming commodity supercycle. Our guest is Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs. An industry veteran, Jeff oversees research across all of the commodity verticals from ags, metals to energy. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. I guess the you know, public statements, beginning of the year, the view is that we're entering another commodity super cycle. Before we jump into kind of why that is, can you help us understand what a commodity super cycle is, how often these, they, they happen, what defines them, help orientate us to that? Well, I think it's a combination of a structural rise in demand and combined with inadequate supplies such that prices reach previous peaks and they do that on a sustainable basis until you get the investment into the sector to rebuild the supply base. And when we think about commodity super cycles in the last 100 years, we had one following the Second World War, and you had to go back and rebuild a lot of commodity productive capacity, and you needed higher prices to achieve that. Another one in the 70s, and another one in the 2000s. And those periods last somewhere around, I would say, 10 plus years, because that's about how long it takes to invest in new productive capacity. So think about it as being an investment phase to invest in adequate supplies to be able to meet a a rise in demand. But one thing when I look back at it, you know, they are also characterized by periods of redistribution. And you think about, you know, that period in the seventies, it was characterized by, you know, the, the war on poverty. The one in the two thousands was essentially the rise of the middle class in China, which was redistribution between European and American middle class, you know, towards the, the lower income of China. So these redistribution themes are also very important and play an important role in these commodity super cycles. Yeah. Before we jump into why, you know, the thesis of why we're about to enter a new one, so when was the trough of the last one? The trough of the last commodity super cycle was in late 2015, early 16, when oil reached $25 a barrel because of two factors. One, we finally saw the, the enormous supply response due from the $147 oil during that super cycle. We also saw the end of that structural rise in demand from China, meaning that you had returns in China were finally turning negative. You know, the pollution was at intolerable levels. And when we think about the ability to go forward, it had to become from restructuring, deleveraging too much debt, taking the pollution out of the system and cleaning up excess capacity to get returns better. And that's what they did in that previous five-year plan was to make those types of restructurings to be in a much better position, which is where they are. How much was the heat taken out of the last cycle as a result of the global financial crisis, increased regulation in commodity trading across the globe? Very little. In fact, when we look at you know the financial crisis, it's a blip in the chart of commodity prices marching higher from essentially January 2002 following September 11th. You know, all the way to, you know, you look at the peak in commodity prices, it was sometime in the second quarter of 2011. Yeah, technically the oil price spike in July of 2008 was higher, but you look at back-end oil and, you know, you still had $130 oil in April of 2011. So, you know, you look at all these markets, they capitulated sometime around 2011. I also like to point out it was also that same time period in late uh, or spring of 2011 that Glencore did its IPO. So I know these things are really hard to actually pinpoint when, but the thesis is that we're at the beginning or in the early stages of another commodity super cycle. And, and your thesis in particular is is REV, R-E-V. I'm fascinated by this. Can you walk us through why you think we're at the start of, of the next super cycle? The core of it is the pandemic represents a structural shift that creates the catalyst for the structural bull market. And the reason I say that is following the financial crisis in 0809, policy was focused on financial stability. 
And so every time anything got any it got very good, they would raise rates or you know push the market back to some equilibrium. And every time anything got any really bad, they would stimulate to get the market back to equilibrium. It didn't matter if it was OPEC who had us policy of market stability or the Federal Reserve that was focused on financial stability. All policymakers were focused on that stability given the trauma that occurred after 08, 09. Now, we have a period of a, we'll call it a social crisis. Now, you can argue that COVID started out as a health crisis, morphed into an economic crisis, and now is a social crisis. And to deal with a social crisis, policy needs to be focused on social need. And when we think about social need, it is a radical shift from where we were in the previous 15 years. Because think about this. If your problem was fixing a financial crisis, your stimulus mainly went on bank balance sheets to plug non-performing loans, which then in turn drove down interest rates, mechanically raised equity prices, and created a wealth effect. And we ask, who owns most of the world's wealth? It's the higher income, richer people in the world. So they were the ones that benefited mostly from the stimulus and their marginal propensity to consume is very low. You give them a dollar, they're gonna save it, they're not gonna spend it. When policy is focused on social need, it goes to the lower incomes and the lower incomes have a high propensity to consume. And as a result, when you have stimulus directed to those income groups, it systematically raises demand. We didn't get that out of the financial crisis. And that's part of the reason we never saw inflation and we never saw a commodity bull market is we didn't get that environment of a mechanical increase in demand from the stimulus. This time we're getting it. In fact, you can already see it in the postcode level data in the United States where the lower incomes are consuming at a much higher rate than what they were previously. And so that that really sits at the the, the, the core of the structural change is that we're now focused on on policy that is aimed at social need. Now there's three components of this. One are just outright redistributional policies. The second are environmental policies. Think about that as being green capex. And then the third are versatility and supply chains. And those are REV. So R redistributional, E is environmental, V is versatility and supply chains. And just, you know, redistributional is it is what it is. You know, you just basically redistributing wealth towards lower income households that have the higher propensity to consume to deal with income inequality. Just staying on redistribution before we move on to the other two. Is that a global phenomenon? Are we seeing that, you know, beyond just even Europe and the US in the form of these direct stimulus checks in form of, you know, various policies? Is that a global phenomenon? It is in the five-year plan in China. You take that dual circulation it's creating domestic demand for their own output so they don't have to reply, rely on the Americans or the Europeans for consumption of their excess production. And to do that, they're going to move people from the rural areas into the urban areas. And so, again, it's, it's this same concept of you know, stimulating activity at the lower income level to create new demand for their own products. So this is something we've never seen before in that China Europe and the US are all focused on these redistributional policies. The other thing with China to keep in mind, they're fully aware of what's going on in the US and Europe with you know, extreme income inequality. So they're doing everything they can to prevent that from happening, which is keep continuing these policies focused on moving rural people into urban areas and creating you know, that uptick for the lower income um, groups. So no, this is very much a global phenomenon and not isolated to uh, the US and Europe. However, I do wanna emphasize that in US and Europe, it is, it, you know, it's at a high pitch where it needs to be dealt with at this, in the current environment, which is different from, from China. China doesn't have to deal with it right now, even though they are focused on it. U.S. and Europe have to deal with it. And I'd argue the problem in U.S. and Europe, now I'm not going to say it's a direct result of what happened in China in the 2000s, but it exacerbated a problem that was already underway going back to the, to the A's. In fact, I want to make this point, is that if you look at income inequality and you look at it over um, the last 100 years, 
when was the U.S. and Europe the most equal? The answer is 1979, which is a period of peak real commodity prices and peak inflation. So solving income inequality is usually associated with commodity bull markets and inflationary pressures. It goes back to this whole point. You're creating new consumption, which is what China did in the 2000s, is continuing to do now, and what Europe and the um, United States are likely to do. And arguably this time it could be an order of magnitude greater than in historical examples. I, I, you know, this is a week when GM have announced a production interruption because they've run out of, you know, chips, microchips. Just I think a small microcosm of kind of this huge demand and actually challenges around actually meeting that from a whether it's supply chain of, of finished products or the commodities themselves. Absolutely. I think that that is a, a critical point is that we haven't seen this type of demand growth in you know, decades. You know, you look at durable goods demand in October of last year in the United States, it was running at 15 percent year over year. And by the way, there's no COVID effect October over October of 2020, um, which just underscores the type of demand strength that these industries are facing for the first time in a you know, very long period of time. Yeah. And then you've got these other two legs to the stool that are part of the, in some cases, use part of the solution and in other cases, part of the drivers to what's going on on that redistribution. Can we move on to, I guess, environment, the, the E in Rev? It blurs between E and R. And you know, I like to borrow the term from Boris Johnson, green leveling, spending on green pack capex to level income. They solve, you know, t- you know, you kill two birds with one stone in the sense that climate change is a pressing social issue. And income inequality is one as well. So you can work at solving both at the same time. You know, in terms of thinking about the amount of capex that we see happening, we would peg it at around $16 trillion over this coming decade. To put that in context, the Chinese spent about $10 trillion in the 2000s. Put that in real terms, it's pretty much close to the same. So this is about the same magnitude as the capex cycle that China created in that BRICS boom or EM boom of, of the 2000s. And again, it does, you can draw parallels to, to the 70s as well. You know, the, you know, while we had the war on poverty in the 70s and we have the war on income inequality today, you also had the war on acid rain in the, 19, in the 1970s and we have the war on climate change. By the way, taking the sulfur out of the fuels and out of the atmosphere accelerated the carbon problem. Think about this. Sulfur is a coolant. And we didn't like smog, but smog did cool the Earth's surface. By getting rid of smog and getting rid of all that sulfur, we actually heated the planet. In fact, you know, MIT just did this study that estimates IMO 2020, the final nail in the coffin of acid rain, raised temperatures by a quarter degree Celsius. Sulfur, you know, you did you take one out, you create, you know, you accentuate a problem. It's a delicate balance. So that war on acid rain helping, you know, accentuate this war on climate change. And we're going to deal with this and probably create a problem down the road in the future when we deal with this. But I think the key point here is again those parallels with the 70s with today is, you know, today it's the war on climate change. And then I think if anything, COVID has shown us is that these problems are probably worse than what we think. And that this spending is going to, you know, most likely accelerate going forward. And that 16 trillion is based upon where we see costs today. They could be substantially higher when we actually see it. One last point on on the E before we move on on it is that today is very different than where we were six weeks ago with Biden in in the White House, a, Georgia having gone Democratic, the probability of seeing a sweeping climate change type bill being pushed through is very high. We have a blueprint in the U.S. now for what energy transition looks like. We already had one in Europe, but more importantly, as soon as Georgia went democratic, the Chinese responded and had their own blueprint for for energy transition. Why? Because they knew it was a high probability that the Americans were going to join the Europeans and hit them with a carbon border tax. So if anything, right now, if we take like we had a Cold War and, and with the Soviets back in the 70s and a Cold War today, instead of an arms race, we probably have a decarbonization race to, you know, who's going to get hit first with a carbon border tax. So if anything, it kind of works in the favor of trying to resolve this. But I think the key, the key point here is that we now have a blueprint for what energy transition looks like globally. We didn't have that six weeks ago. 
And there's a couple of points I want to dig in there because I know from our previous discussions that you know using that analogy of of, of sulfur, you know that really took the Russians and the U.S. coming together, the two biggest you know, manufacturers of of timber, to solve that issue because it had direct economic impacts on them, and they were the ones that could move the needle. Are you suggesting, or is it, the thesis is that actually? Because one of the issues about climate change has been, you know, getting now the Europeans, the US and the Chinese and even the Indians on board. Have we kind of gotten past that stage now? Is there that global alignment that this is something that needs tackling? Yeah. And I think the threat that did it, the equivalent to the, the lumber industry of the 70s, is the carbon border tax, the trade war. Because the trade war was already in place, the obvious next direction the trade war was going to go was carbon border taxes. And if you knew that was coming your direction, you're now China, you want to get in front of it. Now, I, I argue, why did Xi Jinping get so green on us after Georgia? I would argue it's that. And that's going to take us on to the V. But before we get there, have the US, has Europe chosen? And that, you know, in terms of particularly transportation, are we just going to go straight EV, the household level, hydrogen or whatever you know have we have we gotten past what technologies we think the future is going to use are we there yet or is there still quite a lot of ambiguity uncertainty about how that decarbonization plan will play out in our daily lives you know i before covid i thought there was a high probability we get this this perfect world where a functioning carbon price that's global in nature people could invest around it to find the optimal technology to solve this problem. COVID came along and it changed all that. It means you have a public-private partnership to try to solve these problems. Governments are going to pick the technologies and spend money because now you're killing two birds with one stone. You're killing the income inequality issue with the, with the, the green agenda. And so to do that, you actually have to pick the, the, the technology to try to solve this. And in doing so, you take away that free market aspect of, you know, the market choosing the technology. So given that, we think, okay, what are the technologies most likely? And the Chinese are very explicit in their most recent description of how energy transition occurs is it's renewables. And you use gas to deal with the intermittency because in the future you can switch the gas infrastructure to, to hydrogen. And then you deal with the ind industry with gas today because you switch it to hydrogen. So that, you know, hydrogen becomes the ultimate fuel, but you build the infrastructure around gas because they're dual. And then, you know, batteries and hydrogen become the transportation fuels. I mean, that's kind of the direction in which the, you know, the Chinese went and the Europeans are potentially going there. And same thing with the Americans. Now, there are obviously going to be, you know, you know, variations of that, but that does seem to be the the direction that they're going. And what that news is, it tells you which commodities are going to be the ones that are going to be high in demand. And obviously, copper sits atop of that list because electrification sits at the center of it. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about hydrogen on, on this podcast. Okay, so before we move on to the impacts and the ramifications of all of this, the exciting bit, let's just zoom in on that V, that versatility of supply chain. So you've, you've already touched on carbon becoming the next sort of tariff can you talk about you know that the v and why that's going to drive a commodity super cycle it's because you have a quasi cold war between the west and china and obviously the trade war was the first manifestation of that and in the trade war it was building out your own manufacturing sector securing supply supply chains you look at the chinese dual circulation dual circulation means creating um, demand for your own output but also securing the inputs to your own output. And so that would be like, you know, the Chinese building reserves of grains, building reserves of copper, building reserves of oil. By the way, the Europeans and the Americans did this in the 70s during the Cold War with the Soviets. So we're seeing a very similar dynamic playing out again. So, but it's not only just securing, you know, supply and security of supply through reserve building, but it's also Biden's Made in America pledge. You know, Biden wants to buy EVs that are not only made in America, but made with unionized labor. To do any of that, you've got to build out new supply chains. So it's going to create a new demand, or it's the duplicate 5G networks that are likely to be built. So 
all of this, you know, it's a resiliency and supply chain that we saw during the 70s, during that Cold War with the Soviets, you know, we're starting to rear its head again. I don't think you're going to get that type of CapEx that was associated with that, that arms race, which was massive in its own right. But you're also going to get a lot of CapEx for things like, let's say, duplicate 5G networks to avoid having the Americans doing you know, Huawei and you know, using AT&T instead. So those are going to be the type of dynamics that we are referring to when we think about this versatility of supply chain initiatives. But you're already seeing it in the reserve building within China. Hmm. So I think it's a pretty compelling argument. We're already seeing it, as you say, you know, here in the U.S. and globally in prices. Is there anything that you think can happen that would stop it dead in its tracks that you know, still sits within the sort of realm of feasible and possible? You know, it's all about execution risk of the policymakers because it is a political view here. There is no natural arbitrage to force this in the sense that let's take China. China was a policy decision. You know, when you look at when was China admitted into the WTO? It's like September 17, 2001, right after September 11, 2001. Why? Because the Americans needed the Chinese to vote to allow them to use force in the Middle East in the UN Security Council. So they swapped a vote in the UN Security Council for an immediate admission into WTO. I don't think they ever thought the, the, you know, the huge implications of doing that but what it did is it opened up an arbitrage between Europe and the U.S. and China through the exportation of all these goods to our that labor differential, the pollution differential, and the cost of coal differential. Um, so it had a natural arbitrage. Here we don't have that natural arbitrage. The arbitrage has to be created by government regulation. So the government, you know, spending on redistribution, spending on, you know, environmental green initiatives. So the question is, are they going to back off? Now, I do think there is a natural arbitrage to it in the sense that if you look at the 70s, you know, once you once you open up that Pandora's box, putting it back in is very difficult. And the reason that, you know, I say that is you look at the at LBJ, he was the first one that did the war on poverty, but clearly Nixon continued it, Ford continued it. Carter continued it. They didn't put that genie back in the bottle until 1979. And then finally, Reagan put the nail in the coffin of it in 1981. So, yeah, it, it was a long road. So once you do this, it's difficult to put it back in. And let, here's a very important point. You take what was the, the, one of the biggest risks to this view, you know, late last year, it was that McConnell and the Senate would stop it. Well, he didn't give the $2,000 checks and what happened? He lost his job after Georgia. So I would tend to think that, you know, that this genie is out of the bottle. And if the policymakers don't respond to it, you know, it becomes, you know, increasingly difficult of an environment to navigate. So I think there is some somewhat of a natural arbitrage like what you had with China in the 2000s, but it's not nearly as strong. Yeah. And also it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy is, We'll come on to it later, but, you know, obviously inflation driving prices itself. So our audience is primarily in and around the commodity trading world. So with that lens on, what do you think the short term impacts of us entering a commodity super cycle will be, you know, the next one to three years or whatever we define as short term? You know, the question is, are we in one right now? I would tend to think that that we are. And the, the, the reason I say that is that if you look at these commodity markets, every single one of them, with the exception of zinc and cocoa, are in a deficit right now. And only oil has the artificially curtailed supply due to OPEC. The rest of them are in a de natural deficit, which tells you that the underinvestment in supply has already started to bite, you know, due to what we call the revenge of the old economy, meaning that you know, due to higher returns in the new economy, capital was redirected towards the, you know, the tech boom, starving the old economy of the capital that need to build the supply base, overlay negative oil prices from COVID and ESG factors. In oil, CapEx is down somewhere between 40 and 70 percent, depending on where you are in the world. My CapEx in metals and mining, no maintenance CapEx is going on due to delays around COVID on top of a lack of investment that had been going on since 2013. 
So, you know, again, it's a very tight supply situation that is creating these deficits right now. So I'd argue it's already underway. But immediately, there's also this macro repricing due to a, a weak dollar that um, could take us to much higher levels in a very, you know, very, very quick period. I don't know when these macro repricings occur, but I've been through two of them in my life, one in 2005 and another one in 2015. And, you know, to give you an idea, you know, I talk to people who are oil people, and they go, why are you talking about iron ore when you're talking about oil? Because you got to look at these in a very holistic manner. And the reason I say that is let's, let's give me, I'm going to give you an example of, of a oil Canadian, a Canadian, you know, private equity firm that had oil assets back in 2012. They valued the assets at $120 a barrel. And the IRR, the assets, was running around 20%. Fast forward to 2016, oil goes from 120 down to 45. Iron ore goes from 182 down to $30 a ton. Copper goes from 9,000 a ton down to 3,500 a ton. The Canadian dollar gets smashed from you know 1.4 down to 1.9. You know the dollar rips to the upside, and we wake up in an entirely different world. So now let's go back and revalue that Canadian asset, $45 oil. What do you think the IRR was? Because remember, the Canadian dollar are wages. They've been smashed. You know, all the steel, all the input is at different price levels. The IRR was 21 to 22%. It was higher at $45 oil, which underscores that when you go through with these macro repricings, they're not really fundamentally driven by the fundamentals of the commodity market. They're a much broader dynamic. And, and actually, it's a good thing. Remember when you asked me at the beginning, when did when was the trough of the last commodity super cycle? It was exactly that macro repricing. Why? Because people, the first macro repricing that I lived through was 05. They all went to China. They believed in the China story. Oil levitated by $20 a barrel as they believed in it. And it was in 2015, they go, nope, game over. Remember, it was Uber and it was the the unicorns in Silicon Valley and all of that tech boom. And that's when the fangs took off, you know, Netflix and Facebook, all that, all that money came flying in. It was Uber was the poster child and it all went into the U S we haven't seen that pricing shift yet though. Have we, we haven't seen that. Haven't at all. And when that pricing shift happens, it's going to be violent and it'll likely be the obvious place for it to go is into real assets which would be oil and commodities and everything. And then you reprice everything. I don't know where oil goes. I just tell people I want to be long and hang on for the ride because I don't know where it's, where that, where, where, where the next stop is. And I don't know where it is on any of these markets. So when we go back to 2005, at that point, I remember I was starting my career in, in searching commodities. You know, everyone was getting in. You know, there was a huge, you know, the, the, the returns from trading houses, banks, merchants, you know, it, it was... You know, I, I, it was very famous back then. You know, it was kind of the, I remember the, the Financial Times article that if you could spell derivatives, you could, you know, make it have a lucrative career in commodities. Do we expect to see that again? And I also want you to bring in, at the same time, there was a huge amount of passive investment started to come in with the launch of the, you know, the GS, G, you know, GSCI and so forth. Well, what is this going to mean for the trading environment? You know, I think it's going to, you know, absolutely explode. And here's the reason why is that if you look at the size of bond portfolios today, they are unprecedentedly big because of QE, far bigger than an 05, far bigger than an 08. That's all that we've seen grow and grow in extraordinarily large size over the last 10 years. Yields are incredibly low. You know, they've dropped on, a, you know, your, your average investment grade portfolio has a yield of 1.95%. Put in your government bonds that are, you know, zero to negative, and even high yield comes in at 2.8. Now, my guess is the average bond yield's got a half a percent yield or something like that, you know, or maybe 1%. And then you go, okay, now let's let inflation start to drift from one and a half up towards two, maybe two and a half. What if it goes to three? These bond portfolios are massively underwater. And then you have to go, okay, they need to hedge. They can't all run out the door immediately because then, you know, interest rates are going to explode. So essentially they're going to have to turn to um, something to hedge. What is that going to be? It's got to be a real asset. And oil companies won't do it. A REIT 
my mirror emphasizer REIT won't do it. You need to own the real apartment buildings. You can't own the REIT. You can't own the oil company. You got to own the real oil. You got to own the gold. In fact, I've even heard some people to try to create liquidity for this event, you know, stream the equity off of a gold gold company because you want to own that real asset. You don't want to own a financial asset. So let's say in 2008 at the peak, get a trillion dollars in these markets. You know, it could be a factor of, you know, four to five times that. Now, the one thing is that I doubt it's going to be it's going to be long dated derivative type products like it was in the 2000s. I don't think that there's going to be a lot of demand for that, that, that depth. It's probably going to be much more near dated structures because I think you're going to end up with extremely backwardated markets. Because the one thing about the, the 2000s was that the, the, the capital was always looking for a home, whether if it was the excess reserves out of China, wherever it might be. And so it just went into the back end of these forward curves. It's not going to go in the back end of these forward curves right now. It's going to be spent. And when it gets spent, it creates real physical demand and creates backwardation. So these products like you're referring to, like the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, which is now the S&P GSCI, or like the BCOM, which is the Bloomberg Index, these indices roll the front month. That though They are basically designed for this kind of environment and for that diversification. So I think there's going to be a huge demand for, you know, traded products within the commodity space, but it's not going to look the same as what it did in the 2000s. It's probably going to be much, much bigger. I mean, it's going to be far more near dated. And I think there's also going to be far more physical, right? Because that the V, that versatility of supply chain means that actually what you're going to need, and I want to come on to the, the human capital element, you're going to need people who know how to secure, find, convert in time, space and product nature, these commodities to meet that demand. One thing that struck me when you were saying about talking about oil, in fact, any of these commodities is actually the E bit, the green bit will actually delay our ability to invest in infrastructure to overcome this deficit, right? In terms of, you know, for example, it's unlikely that shale, you know, it's it arguably we've We've had a show about this, whether, you know, arguably ever made anyone any money outside of the initial investors. But shale is probably not going to meet the green agenda. So that can't be a balancer for oil. You know, you, you talk about the, the you know offshore drilling, that's going to be curtailed. There's going to be much higher standards put in place potentially around, you know, where and how they, they drill. Same with mining. So you might actually, the capacity of the commodity industry to respond to this, these deficits is also going to be curtailed by the, the actual thing that's also driving the need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question is, does the demand loss from energy transition, demand loss for oil from energy transmission, you know, outweigh the supply loss? You know, at the beginning, you're going to get stimulus creating more demand for oil long before these technologies kill off the demand. At the same time, you're not going to get the supply. So that the very beginning, that gap is fairly large. It becomes more ambigu- ambiguous at like 2025 and then by 2023. You know, right now our expectations is the rate of growth slows in 2025 and, you know, the the peak oil is somewhere around 2031 and then it drifts so over. Another way to say it is second derivative goes negative in 2025 and then the first derivative goes negative in, in 2031. And so when you get out there, it becomes more ambiguous, which, which, which one's going to impact more. But I think you're absolutely right that the difficulty in making these investments is going to be extreme. And then you go to another question. If you were an investor today, would you invest in a deep water project? You'd know. it's Because it, you now know with U.S. and China on board with energy transition, you hit the stop. This is the, the clock. It's ticking for, for oil right now. It's just a matter of time. And would I want to invest in some long long-lived project no you're only going to do very short cycle and you're not going to care about the growth outlook of a company like you did back in you know say 2015 instead all you want to do is get your money back as fast as you possibly can and you think about where is fast cycle production exists in the united states uh, middle east in russia those are only two three places that are really going to be growing production going forward everything else is going to be in a free fall which means you know, you're going to have to put more and more in that. And then also, let's think about Biden. He has 3 million barrels per day of U.S. production that he can do whatever he want, wants on federal land unilaterally without having approval from 
from uh, from Congress. You know, he can levy taxes, royalty rates. He can take away drilling credits. There's a lot that, that he can do in terms of raising, creating a wellhead carbon tax, which, you know, given the importance of that fast cycle production, you know, there's no telling, what, you know, what's going to be. I think we'll have a clearer picture of what may happen in 60 days from now. But at this point right now, that's one area that he's got a lot of leverage to be able to pull around, which just even makes it that much more difficult to bring on that marginal supply that's one of the most important to the rest of the world right now. Moving on to the, I guess, the human capital piece, the, the talent piece, I would argue, you know, what we're seeing is that we're already in, certainly in the super cycle. You know, you've had great returns across trading businesses for the last two years. Okay, you know, it's been a confluence of incredible events around COVID and trade wars and so forth. I find it fascinating that, you know, the turnaround on, you know, unstacking a rig or, or reopening a mine is pretty long, but the turnaround on actually developing someone to be capable of meeting the the needs of physical and financial commodity trading or whatever, you know, merchant activities is much longer. And we've had a sustained period, actually, in the case of talent, probably since the global financial crisis, when all of the banks scaled down teams, some exited, certainly you had limited investment in new new talent coming through. Then you've had the confluence as well of automation. So the traditional nursery ponds of, of new traders, new originators, new leaders, you know, from operations and and control and so forth. You know, those 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 seats have shrunk as well. I, you know, I think it's an open question how the markets, are, at least in the short term, are, and even in the medium term, are going to be able to to supply the talent needed to to meet this the the, the challenge presented by REV, right? Yeah, and you know, very much like bringing on a copper mine, it takes a long time to develop this talent. It's not something that can be generated overnight, which is why you had such extreme shortages of people in 04, 05. It wasn't until around 2011 that you really started to de-bottleneck you know, the, the individuals that could actually perform this. And by, and by the time you really started seeing a you know, surplus labor in the sector, it was around 2013, 2014. So it took nearly a decade. And that's about how long it takes to bring on a copper mine. Labor's not fast cycle like like the shale production is, unfortunately, which means that, you know, many of the people that did do this, you know, going back a decade ago, you know, they have retooled themselves, moved on to other sectors. And so trying to bring back some of that skill set would be very difficult if not impossible, which means you're going to have to retool a whole new group of people. And this is going to take time. Yeah, we go through this and it's the boom bust cycles associated with commodities. Um, and by the way, it's I would argue it's not just commodities this time, it's the whole macro space, because it's been a bear market for for macro trading now for, you know, you know, going back to you know, 2014, something like that. So it's a broader hole in you know, people, you know, if you look at, you know, where did the talent go? It went into new economy, tech, and, you know, the Googles of the world. That's where all the, the talent got trained up, and that's where they went. You know, they avoided the old economy in the in the, the, the macro space, which means we, we're going to have to see a lot of people brought back into that space. You know, so it's not just commodities. It's, it's you know, rates, FX, all of it, because, you know, these, these things all have been, you know, a, a, a sleeper for quite some time. Yeah, there's not. In 2005, the and you know the energy trading companies were drawing from AGs. They were drawing from equities, FX, bonds. Lots of the leaders in commodities right now have a background in bonds. Yeah, as you say, that that pool isn't available. You've also had an aging. You know that that the cohort that will be able to build the commodity desk of the future, you know, are exactly the same people in many ways that were mid-level a decade ago. You know, there's no one behind them. So I think it's it's going to be a real challenge, and it might be a little bit different, right? Because a lot of what we've covered as well has been that the commodity desks of the future are going to look quite different. They're going to be much more automated, much more data driven. You know, you've already got one person doing the role of maybe five people, you know, twenty years ago in terms of, you know, trading, origination, operations, business development. So it is going to look different, but I think it's going to be a real challenge for organizations to actually meet their strategies around building out if not 
aggressive trading desks and at least marketing and origination businesses that help them get closer to their customers, closer to the edge, and manage that volatility in their supply chains. By the way, the one thing I think that's going to make this one different than, let's say, the the, the 2000s is that risk mitigation came through syndication or came through trading, managing the risk through trading. I would argue that this time around, mitigation of the risk is going to come through syndication of the positioning, you know, parceling it out to, you know, different types of counterparties. Because I think the, the tolerance within banks or any other organizations to be able to take on large amounts of risk are not going to be there, which means that, you know, people with the origination skills are going to be the ones that probably where the bottlenecks are going to exist. Yeah. And that's probably going to tie into what's a lot of what's going on in distributed ledgers and so forth to be able to actually track these trays and distribute them really efficiently. So, okay, so so short term, we've probably got a bit of a wild ride. We could see oil hit, some, you know, some unprecedented highs. You can have a lot of volatility, demand for talent. Long term, just moving on to that long term, okay, so it's 2025. What do you see at that point taking us through the next decade, you know, to the end of the decade? You know, the question is, if the ultimate goal here is income equality, then this thing's probably going to go on until you resolve that. And, you know, you look at what happened in the 70s, it went on until finally, you know, price of houses were too high, interest rates were too high, people said they had enough. It wasn't that, you know, Volcker was this magician who came in there and could do it, the only person. He did it because the people wanted him to do it. And so the question is, you know, when does this thing end? It probably ends when people think, hey, um, we've taken this thing too far. I don't know. Is that five years from now? Is it 10 years from now? You know, somebody made the, you know, they asked me, well, can't you just be like MBS, take everybody to the Ritz-Carlson and shake them down? Yeah, you could do that. But by the way, you're going to get the same outcome of a bull market in commodities. Why? Because they just walk out the next day and spend all this stuff and the prices um, would explode. So you still end up with that same bull market and commodities kind of inflationary backdrop, you know, even if you did it that way. So it doesn't matter the way you do it. You still end up with the same outcome. The question is, how long does it take to do it? And so, you know, I can give you different scenarios and I have no idea which one's going to be the one that's going to be executed on and the one that's the most dominant here. We'll find that out as, as, as by 2025, we'll probably have a clearer picture. But I would view that as being, when do we think this is over? It's when everybody thinks the world has had enough of trying to achieve income you know, equality. Because I think the, the point right now, we've all had enough of achieving financial stability. Just, it, it, it was, you know, it had a lot of pitfalls in it that we now know. But with, at the time, people were focused and policy was focused on that financial stability. Now it's focused on social need. And so the question is, when do we think we have enough of that? And I think, you know, measures of inequality might be the way to look at it. Yeah. There's a couple of, I, I want to pick out one or two, or two or three, I think, key things that I've, I've, I've taken from our discussions that, I, you know, you, you can almost be pretty confident on. One is inflation. Can you talk about where that's going to fit in this and how that's probably going to exacerbate problems? You know, I, I, again, I'm not the macroeconomist, so I don't, you know, and I'm not the one with the inflation view here. But I, I, it's just, I just want to talk about broadly. And I, by the way, if we're talking inflation, it doesn't take much to create a problem. If your average bond yield of an investment grade portfolio is 1.95%, you go to 2%, you got a problem. But let's talk about, you know, historically, you know, solving income inequality. Why is it correlated to inflation? It's not the policy goal. The policy goal is income equality. When do wages converge? Wages converge in an overheating economy. We have not seen an overheating economy. We saw it briefly in late 17, early 18. And then they raised rates to 2.5% and killed off the killed the golden goose before it could lay an egg. You know, in terms of before that, we maybe we saw it briefly in, you know, six and seven, the 2006 and seven. So we haven't seen overheating economies for very, very long periods of time. And that's part of the reason we haven't seen a bull market in commodities or inflation in a long period of time. So if you if you make the observation that wages converge in an overheating economy, policymakers want to see converged wages means they're going to let this thing overheat. If they let over or let it overheat, the byproduct of an overheating economy is our commodity bull markets and inflation. 
I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to take a view here on inflation or commodity, but I'm just making that simple observation is that if you want to create income equality, best way to do it is let the economy overheat because, you know, all boats rise in the rising tide type scenario. And so the byproduct of that environment is inflation and commodity bull markets. That's kind of the way I would think about it, which goes to that whole point that I was saying before is the, 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 People, the place we were most equal historically was that period in which we had peak inflation and peak real commodity prices. The other thing that really struck me from our conversations was you said metals is going to be the most interesting thing in a decade or the most interesting trade in market. I found that fascinating. Can you, can you give us an insight into why? If you take copper, there's no way you can do the energy transition with that. And the potential demand from this is massive. And when we also think about your right now, your today, inventories in the last five weeks on copper have drawn is the largest observable draw for this time, you know, this time of year. Inventories are at 08 levels. Prices are at super cycle levels. And we haven't even started the energy transition. And there is no technological substitute for copper. And so, you know, you listen to people that say, oh, you know, the beauty about renewable power and everything is we don't have to depend upon rogue states for oil production. And, and I mean, it's, my point is that, no, you're just going to trade, you know, geopolitical issues with oil producers for geopolitical issues with metals producers. You can't do this energy transition without copper. Last time I checked, China, Europe or the United States don't produce copper. And copper is the most critical input to creating this energy transition. You need to have cobalt. You need to have lithium. You need to have nickel. All of these metals start to become strategically really important. And also the group that, you know, so does Chile become the new Saudi Arabia? By the way, it doesn't take long. You know, for those of all of us, you know, that have been in this business for quite time, energy was was always the the elephant in the room while that you know metals was its you know energy's poor stepchild it's going to reverse but think about this all you need is copper to go to 30 or 40,000 a ton which would be a, you know let's say we know oil was you know the grill in the room during the 2000s and oil went from 20 to call it 100 went up a quintuple let copper do that oil goes up to let's say 85 or 100 and stays there copper goes up by a factor of five, now metals are bigger than uh, bigger than energy. And we're in a very different world where energy now becomes the poor stepchild of metals. And Chile is the new Saudi Arabia. And, you know, guess what? That new rogue state is the DRC. So, you know, I, it's, you know I'm not forecasting this again. This is, these are the things we need to be thinking about, you know, that, that could really shift here. Because strategically, metals become far more important than 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 oil and energy, than you know the, the the fossil fuels. Because ultimately, aren't we trying to get away from fossil fuels and go to electrification? So anything that can create electrification becomes strategically important. And copper, still, to given the constraints around the periodic table, becomes the strategically most important commodity. Yeah, I mean, if electrons go to a variable cost of zero, right, through renewables and so forth. Oils, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, yeah, it's an obvious, well, it's a, an obvious outcome. The so you've got inflation, well, potentially have inflation. You've got these, this, we, we, this coming macro shift in prices in the commodities, which will be a, a fun event when it happens. Long term, you have, you're still, as you say, there are going to be critical components to this energy transition. Sixteen trillion dollars going into it that are currently in, in deficits and it's going to take a significant amount of investment to to meet that coming and new demand. What, what else should we be looking out for over the long term? You know, I, I think the, the, the long term outlook is, you know, is thinking about the energy transition and how quickly it can happen before you start to have much more deleterious impacts of not doing it. Because if we get to a point where we're forced to do this very, very quickly. By the way, I'm not going to discount that. Rolling out EVs and electrifying the world is not going to be an option. And it would have to be done, you know, similar to carbon removal or one of these, you know, you know I still think, you know, that, that the 
you know, carbon capture is going to play a role, even with this more public-private partnership we've been talking about, particularly in the production of hydrogen and other types of industrial activities. But if we got into a situation where we have to deal with climate change immediately, and let's say it's like COVID, where we're watching five pharmaceutical firms duking it out for a vaccination. And by the way, we've, we've proven don't bet against human ingenuity in dealing with these crises. And where backs are against the wall and you got to come up with um, a carbon removal process to just abate the, the atmosphere. And I, by the way, I'm not going to dismiss that as a low probability. Man, we don't know enough. All I know is we completely underestimated COVID. What are the odds we're completely underestimating climate change? If you get one of those outcomes, that creates a very different world. You know, oil still retains a position that is, you know, you know because you've now dealt with the with the, the the carbon issue. So that's the one thing that, that I would just keep keep on the radar screen is, you know, what is what is the potential of having to deal with this climate change issue in a much more urgent manner, more quickly than what everybody has planned out of this 2050 or 2060 type target. And if we're in that, what does that mean for commodities? What it means is, you know, there is a future for oil because you're going to have to figure out how to abate this stuff. Yeah, this is the, I think what I found fascinating about electric vehicles from the podcast we did with Arkady Sozinov of FreeWire Technologies is that, you know, people are buying EVs because they like, right? This isn't government sponsored or driven by that. But the issue is obviously is that the scalability for us all to have EVs globally is just, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. Even at this stage, there's very little penetration right now. And there's already, you know, crunches on lithium or whatever it might be. And I guess you're using the analogy of the catalytic converter that actually, you know, someone could invent something that just captures the carbon at the tailpipe and, you know, we will carry on with combustion engines for a while. So there's still, yeah, there's still a lot of uncertainty about where we might, where this might all go. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion, Jeff. I've, I've really enjoyed it and it's given a, a real insight and some part excitement, part fear about the future. Great, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.